Today's guest on episode nine of the Tone Country Cast with Tim Holland is a multi-award winning singer, songwriter, producer and instrumentalist. He's originally from Brisbane in Queensland and first came to the attention of music fans as part of the band Pretty Violet Stain. He's gone on to release 10 albums. One of those, Hell Breaks Loose, won the ARIA Award in uh, 2015 for Best Country Album. In fact, he's a multiple ARIA APRA and Golden Guitar winner, and he's just released the very moving new single, The High Price of Surviving. Shane Nicholson. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great. That's uh, a very dramatic opening. Yes, well, we do love a dramatic introduction on the country cast. Great to have you here. Um, you are going to release a new album this year. That's the plan. All things going well. Mm. Yeah. Let's go, I guess, right back to the start as a kid. You, um, you've become uh, an artist, a songwriter, a producer, a an instrumentalist, you obviously are basically obsessed with music. How did that start? The obsession with music, I think, well, that started like the same as it does for most people, I think, with my parents, you know, and the music. They, they We were a music-loving household. We weren't a music-playing household. There was no, uh, no one played an instrument in my house other than my mum used to strum a few chords when she was a kid, you know, and uh, she grew up as a real folky. So mm. I was exposed to a lot of Bob Dylan and uh, the folk side of Neil Young and through her, Joan Baez, Donovan, that kind of stuff. And then there was a middle ground between her and my dad. My dad was really into rock and roll, especially 50s, 60s rock and roll. And the middle ground between them, things like bread and uh, bands that were song-centric, I guess. Mm. And it was pretty broad listening growing up. Uh, they never taught me because maybe they didn't know the difference that they never taught me genres or labeled anything it was just all music and i didn't really grow up knowing the difference between them all it was just uh if i felt excited i'd listen to motorhead as a teenager and if i felt uh chilled i would listen to you know uh harvest or something and uh it was just um all about music and that's how it started really just growing up listening to lots and lots of music every day all like all the time it was just uh, certainly one of my dad's one of his rituals was to sit down with a vinyl record and or his collection and just play one after the other and I would sit next to him and soak it all up mm. so did you just eventually pick up a guitar yourself and I did so that my mum had this old uh, folk nylon string guitar from when she was a teenager and it was still in our house but it, I'd never seen it played my whole childhood and then um, it only had f four strings on it from memory and I picked it up and just started to play it because I was listening to all these Donovan records and, and early Dylan and it was all just guitar and voice and it seemed pretty obvious to if I wanted to do that to pick up this guitar so um, I played it uh, for a while I just 
learnt my own – I didn't even know how to tune it. I remember making up chords that didn't even exist just to try and – because I didn't know how to tune it and wrote a few songs before I even learned how to play any chords. Um, and so I think the desire to be creative is what really pushed me to picking up that guitar more than anything. Mm. Uh, you started out in terms of, you know, what you did as a professional recording artist in, in a rock band – uh, pretty violet stain. Um, now, according to Wikipedia, it says you put out an EP called Blush. You put out an album called The Parachutes and Gravity, and it says both releases had minor hit songs on radio <laughs> stations around the country, such as Blush and Never Come Down. I don't know what a minor hit song is. Either a song's a hit or it's not, isn't it? Well, I don't know. A minor hit, that sounds like my whole career. <laughs> minor hit, that's that. fantastic. That's been a minor hit. Uh, Do you write your own Wikipedia page? No, I haven't. I haven't. I didn't know that. That's the first time I've heard that one. That's a good one. And it's probably right. I mean, because at the time in the late 90s when PVS was kind of doing its thing, we'd, we, uh, we were an indie band for a long, long time before we signed with a major label and... Um, uh, we were then touring for a long, long time and it kind of just, it was a high school band that we got to do what we always dreamed about, which was go on tour together. We went overseas, we made a record. Uh, we The band lasted about 11 years, so it was a high school dream that came true. And then it, once that was done, I felt like it was time to move on, so that chapter was kind of finished after that first record. But, um, mm. yeah, there was some, I guess you'd call them minor hits because <laughs> the radio used to play them, you know, for a little while. and uh, But they didn't make us, you know, famous or rich, so I guess that's what makes it a minor, <laughs> a minor hit. <laughs> you, you actually can't find any Pretty Violet Stain music on Spotify or Apple Music or... You iTunes can't. is that deliberate on your end, or is that no? Actually, it's um, some contract. I've, I've been situation. No, we've been trying for years to get Warner to put it up online, and they just kind of lost the masters. Haven't? Yeah, who knows? Probably <laughs> they might have been burnt in a fire. You know what? I actually own the masters for that. I don't. Sorry, I don't own them. I have them. We made that record in England uh, in '99, I think it was, and I still have the the two inch reels, six of them, under my bed. You know that uh, <laughs> that the label apparently own, but don't even care about. So um, I'm home. We're trying to get them back online, and I've been uh, actually scouring eBay. I buy old copies of that record, and because re- there's mm. still people that want to buy them on tour, mm. um, but they're deleted. So I just buy old copies online all the time and resell them. If you go to YouTube, you can actually find a couple of the music videos. One of them, a song called "Talk." Uh, featured Miss Nude Victoria <laughs> dancing. Was she a friend? No, I don't know how <laughs> do, that happened. Do, do you know what she does now? Uh, <laughs> no, no idea. No idea. I don't. So yeah, there's some things that happened back in your earlier days that you're not quite sure how they came to be. That mm. was one of them. Um, I, I, I don't know. You didn't organise that, I guess. I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> I mean, you know. Yeah, we were twenty-one-year-olds at exactly. the time, so we we're like, Good "Oh, fun. this sounds like fun." Um, yes, and uh, I don't we, think you see a f- actual I face don't in the video. Think you do it's, <laughs> it's terribly, terribly um, misogynist video. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've I've seen. Uh, There's actually two versions of that from memory. There's there was a this was back in the day when there was late-night music television too. So there was actually mm. an 
an un unedited or unrated version right yeah, used to play late at night <laughs> how ridiculous Jamaica's yeah, Lee Band did that too did one they? of the early singles <laughs> they did a song they're that disgusting was, boys they, <laughs> they did a video that uh in a strip club I think that was <laughs> excellent they made one version for CMC and YouTube I guess and then there was another version that uh, definitely for themselves <laughs> probably I mean I don't know where they could have uh, put it um, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, what's the outlet for that these <laughs> exactly, days? <laughs> exactly. Um, it's um, so you know. I guess it's nearly well. It's twenty years ago that uh, you guys guess, well, it's, broke up. It's twenty years this year that 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 record came out. The Parachutes and Gravity was released in two thousand. Uh, I don't remember what month, but it, it is the twenty year anniversary this year of that record. Yeah. Uh, is there a reunion to a? Uh, in the pipeline no. would, would that ever happen no chance <laughs> no chance <laughs> so you you became a solo artist after that i think you went to america and you were still i guess considered pop at that point yeah so my first solo record after leaving the band was it's a movie and it kind of was called different things in different countries and that's still the way often the music can be all mm. music can be labelled different That's in different true. countries, you know. And uh, so here it was more of a considered a, a folk pop crossover kind of record. But in America it was it was considered a pop record. But USA uh, Today called it one of the best pop records of the year. Exactly. But I didn't know it was a pop record um, or call it one. <laughs> I mean, my idea of pop was rather different. But we were getting played on AAA radio over there. That mm. was kind of so it's album oriented kind of radio and. There's not really a highlight on any songs as singles as such. Uh, there's certainly stations in certain places that would highlight a single, but most of the stations would just choose whatever they like off the record to play, and those AAA stations had so much freedom. And I spent a lot of time, I mean, like, years over there touring, but and a lot of time just doing radio tours, going to every little radio station in the corner of every state, and... Um, and trying to drum up radio play, and it made a huge, huge difference um, when I went back to those places to tour later. It's, mm. um, there's nothing that really takes the place of putting in that groundwork, like, in person, you know, and getting that station on side. And, and it doesn't happen as much now because there's not as much of... Uh, there's not as many outlets to choose mm. from, you know. I still think it is very important it's super to important. go and see people. It makes you know, a big difference. Enga actually engage... Yeah. <laughs> Certainly if you're asking them to support your music, hmm. it, you know, it, it, helps, um, it helps cement in their minds who you are. They get more of a picture of you as an artist. And hmm. then, because for a, a station or any kind of media outlet to get behind an artist, it's not just about whether they like the song, it's whether they really buy into you hmm. as a concept, you know, Absolutely. and it's so much easier to sell that. that to people if you do it in person. Hmm. Um, ultimately, I guess you fell... Uh, into country music how did that sort of come about i mean to me i listen to all your stuff and um your sound hasn't really changed that much i mean obviously you know there's nuances that are different but you're essentially the same artist you were when you were in that band in terms of the way you sound yeah i think so too um the, the lines the genre lines became a bit more heavily drawn i guess um certainly around 2008 when we made Rattlin' Bones, that kind of seemed to really divide my career into two. And uh, the record before it was especially 
pop because Faith and Science came out. That was my second solo record, and it was very textured record. It took twelve months to make that record. Very complex production, and um, and it really took it out of me. It was my most produced, and now I can say, in hindsight, overproduced, <coughs> you know, record I've ever made. And Rattling Bones was a real antidote to that. It was it was supposed to be the opposite. It was a bit of fun. Mm. and very rough, very rustic. And people saw that as me being pulled into country because I was I made the record with my wife, who with Casey, who was you know the biggest country artist at the time. Mm. So they saw it as her pulling me into country world. But, you know, like I said, I grew up listening to a whole lot of music and a lot of it was country. And most of the people I listened to, though, were folk writers that, that loved country themselves. So Dylan mm. reinterpreted country all the time. So did Neil Young. Um, Elvis was more a country artist than a rock and roll artist ever. And I I learnt from all of that growing up. So I had a pretty good uh, education on country music, I think. And um, people would be surprised to know that it was that Rattling Bones was actually more my creative kind of idea, not to play my own horn, but mm. I wasn't being pulled into country world at all. I was actually trying to do something actively different from having made this incredibly glossy radio-oriented record, and uh, which mm. I really kind of didn't like at the end. Which, you know? yeah, when you think about that now, <laughs> seems bizarre that you ever did that. Absolutely crazy. I mean, I still enjoy the record, and there's still certain songs on it I play, and it did do well for me, you know, mm. it, it, um, certainly commercially, but it, it wasn't... It wasn't the most enjoyable process, I think, having spent 12 months making a record. and But it was m the start of me really understanding what I want to be as a, what I wanted to be as an artist and, and how to produce that. So it was really after that record that I started getting my head around producing, you know, because uh, I did so much of that record uh, myself and, and it took so long through trial and error, really. And so I learned a lot through it. I, I don't regret any record I've ever made um, but Rattling Bones was the opposite to that and that then led into you know Bad Machines and, and a couple of other records which was certainly had a more distinct country flavour but you're right the songs aren't written all that differently you know mm. I haven't I've, I've toyed with all the different sounds I heard growing up in the different genres of music but essentially you're still the same songwriter um, mm. inside all those things I, I find you know a lot of times you'll work with an artist or listen to a new album and they'll go, I've taken this really new approach to everything and I've, you know, I'm not this anymore and I'm this instead. And generally um, the artist will feel that it's far more dramatically different than perhaps it actually is. <laughs> yeah, I think people, certainly artists, I felt this before, you want to feel that it's dramatically different. You want to feel mm. that what you're saying in your new batch of songs is remarkable and world changing and, you know, because it is for you personally. Mm. But of course it, is. it often isn't for the rest of the world looking like in on it as it to a lot of people it's just another record from another person. And I've started to realize that myself so i i remember thinking as a new artist for the first three or four albums you make it feels like every time you step in the studio whatever you create is going to define you forever it feels like you have the entire weight and expectation of the world on you when you make mm. your first certainly when you make your first or second record and it's even more like that these days because you don't get as many follow-up chances if it doesn't work you know and so 
I remember that feeling of like, Christ, if I don't get this right, the whole thing's going to be over. But once you get past half a dozen records, seven, then eight, then nine, you start to go, oh, well, they're just records. They don't change the world. They're mm. just records. You know, they're, they're important to me, but um, it doesn't have to define me. It's just where you are this year. And then I'll make another one to use time and it'll be different again. So you start to, um, you don't take the importance away from them, but they don't have to define you. So um, I get far less concerned or tied up in knots about it these mm. days. Do you think a lot of the young artists actually put out music too soon? All the time. Mm. All the time. Um, the a, biggest problem, A lot of them are encouraged to. Of course. And yeah. the biggest problem now is that, um, look, the, it's a double-edged sword. I think when I was starting out, I remember having to... You know, we'd save up $350 to go in and we'd record between midnight and 6am and do our demos and you'd send those to, the re to a record company on a cassette and you would try to get a deal. That's how I got a deal. It took a couple of years of doing that, just sending tape after tape after tape and working mm. all night. And it would have been so much easier if we had laptops and recording gear, we could just do it at home, you know. So I think that's an awesome thing now there's no excuse that people can't make their own demos and um or even make their own records at home now um mm. but that leads us into the other side of that coin and without without that uh there's there's, there's kind of no gatekeeper in a way that shuts down the noise so mm. there's something like forty thousand songs uploaded to you know spotify in a day mm. or something or apple in a day or like every single day so in some ways, it's easier now to create your music or have it heard, but it's harder to break through that noise mm. because you're on the same level playing field as 40,000 other people that day. And I think it's a double-edged sword. So there is a lot of people that will put out music without having the advantage of working with somebody on an A&R level, which, you know, is um, I guess stands for artist and repertoire, and that's somebody who kind of can can work with you on a, in a pre-production sense about choosing the right songs that fit with the image you want and the persona and uh, the best quality of songs and the best rounded set of all those kind of things that you used to get advice on those things from labels. Mm. Um, most records made now aren't on labels and no one gets that kind of advice from someone more experienced. Um, and it's I've noticed because I do most of my work as a producer now that that role falls on a producer. Mm, these days definitely so you're doing a and r for an artist and you're trying to kind of structure their record around who they want to be and you're finding out who they are and, as an artist and you're trying to marry those two things up and that is kind of two or three roles that have been rolled into one now which is fine it's totally fine um but there's not a lot of capability for everybody to have that opportunity mm. i guess to get that advice um, i i just think that as a general thing, a lot of 18, 19 year olds don't actually know who they are yet. You know, haven't had enough life experience to be able to go, this is exactly who I am. This is exactly what I want to say. They're still working it out, which is totally fine. Which is probably um, how most are in their life, let alone mm. as an artist. You know, I certainly didn't know who I was as an 18 year old. Mm. But back in the day, you could kind of go out and play pubs and work out what your sound was and how to, you know, grab people's attention when you're playing live. And now with social media, of course, everyone's kind of accessible and it's much easier to 
create a bit of attention within, as you say, what mm-hmm. is a lot of noise, but then you have these people go, oh, you know, get something out there so that, you know, you can, you know, meet, meet people and, exactly, can, yeah. you know, and sometimes I think, oh, I remember seeing the McClymonts play for the very first time. It would have been a Lee Kernigan tour and they played three songs at the start and, and uh, I don't even think they'd put a song out yet. And I just remember thinking, these guys are great. They were um, really, really polished as a live act. They were entertaining. Um, and I'm saying that not even knowing what the songs were, but it's like, wow, I'm impressed. Uh, I do think those first impressions do matter. Yeah. So if you kind of just throw something out there and... You know, for the sake of doing that. Well, you know, they're a perfect example because mm. they worked for a long, long time on their stuff before they put anything out as the McClymonts, mm. you know. Um, there was well, I guess they had an advantage that they were sisters and they were of singing with everyone, you of know, course. since they were like five together. Yeah. You know, even I met Brooke when she was 15 and we were writing, you know, writing songs back then. And, you know, mm. she was down here. They put her up in a hotel in the cross on her own and I thought, <laughs> she was so, you know, that's right, she did a solo album, then. didn't she? Yeah. Mm. And, uh, but they were working on the McClymonts stuff for years. We even made a record that uh, Nash Chambers produced for them. It was about nine songs we got through before they realised it wasn't their direction. You know, it was too rough and raw, so they, they, you know, went somewhere else. And the point is they did have a long-term plan and they didn't just rush in and release mm. the first thing that, that – and it wasn't about just getting it out there. But, it, yeah, you're right, it was pre-social media – days mm. and people feel com- i think people just feel compelled to be in the mix now and they'll, they'll see everyone else releasing records and they just feel like they have to get in there and do it and mm. that's cool as long as the music doesn't suffer because of that you know take your time and write the best songs that's really what's Absolutely. gonna what's gonna get you through in the long run mm. you don't have to peak at 21 <laughs> there is life after that yeah well geez until I think back, I was rubbish at 21. I would have hate, hated that to be my peak. <laughs> mm. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine anyone's going to be the best at what they do at, you know, such a young age. I, you know, pop's different because it's image and as much as, you know, Absolutely, yeah. what, what, you, what you're putting then, out there you know, musically. But. I think about some of my heroes, people, you know, people like Neil Young, we keep mentioning, but he's he's a guy that doesn't really edit himself and he's he's released records in his life that, you know, certainly aren't, my favourites, or ones, some of them I wouldn't even re- really listen to that almost ever, but he's just done his thing and been an artist all the way through. Mm. So in some ways, he had well, he had to earn that mm. capability to do that, and he earned that, and then did it. You know, there's a lot of artists that have done that as well that have just, uh, you know, Ryan Adams was always famous for doing that for just putting out records mm. and songs and then even more songs on a website because he couldn't fit them all on a record and there is something to be admired about that um that uh brave kind of sense of artistry i think but um i think you have to earn your place to do that you certainly can't do that in your first record when you're 21 and mm. and yeah i think it's hard i was um i was just talking to mel dyer like half an hour ago and we were talking about exactly that same thing that um it's uh it's a very different world to be starting music, a music career now, mm. than it was even fifteen, ten years ago, ten or fifteen years ago. So it's changed so much in such a short amount of time that the the 
you know the playing field is is vastly different and and still evolving all the time as well like definitely at the know, moment yeah we're still in a period where we're working out you know the streaming model is one where they want you to put a new song out a month um exactly um and then the the other end of the spectrum if you want to build a fan base um that is really engaged in you then you know, you do have to put bodies of work together and create, you know, a bigger story. But, you know, you want to keep Spotify happy at the Agreed. same time and, you know. It's very tricky because certainly with um, even more so in the country corner of the industry, I think people are, are still very tied to the idea of a record, of a body of work. Um, people like hearing a body of work. People... Mm. It's very hard to create a touring career as a new artist just with you know releasing a song every month to a streaming mm. platform. It, um, I think, I think there's still there's still a, a call and a need for for records and a body of work. Certainly in in the countryside of the industry, um, the it's very difficult to come up with a a plan. I think of turning you know a regular single drop out to streaming services into an actual working career Mm. um it's great you could have a million views internationally but it's not gonna you can't then you can't fill a 200 seat room in sydney there are people with 50 million (laughs) streams who no one's ever heard of that's i guess they're making money if they've done 50 million streams but well someone is are they going on tour (laughs) 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 i mean yeah you're gonna go on tour if no one will know you you know. Yeah, it's tricky. It's very tricky. And, and I mean, it, you're, you're kind of right. You were kind of almost intimating that it's a necessary evil and you do have to keep them happy and it mm. is our outlet. You know, like some of the most powerful people in the industry now are the, the playlist curators for mm. those streaming services. And if you are going to make any money on a, on a streaming service, you need to be on those playlists. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, but yeah, it is, a, it is that balance because, you know, there's a lot of artists in country now, they're putting out songs all the time and they're getting the streams. Uh, they're probably getting a bit of money for it, but they're not going on tour and their profiles aren't growing necessarily. Yeah, but and I mean, the, my only fear with that is that we're not really building longevity. Mm. That's, that's my real fear with, with that model. And it's cool if you're in, in it for the short term and you want to, you know, might if you want to maybe go to uni in 10 years and become a psychiatrist or whatever, that's cool. But if you're looking to have a career and, and we want to support people who want to have careers as an industry, that's where I get a bit worried about, like, are we buying into an artist here and not just a song? Mm. You know? Because by buying into an artist, that's, that's when you're in for the long haul and that's how people like... We've mentioned Neil Young and Wright Adams. Mm. These guys made records and did whatever they wanted to do and people stuck with them. They rode the waves because they bought, they've already bought into the artists, not, mm. the, not their records. I was actually talking to an artist the other day who, fairly new artist, has had some streaming success and I was actually talking to them about the fact that, yes, you've done these songs that work really well for the <laughs> algorithm and all that, but um, I think you should start thinking about recording some other songs that probably the streaming curators won't like, but um, you can potentially uh, start building a, you know, a a more connected fan base, you know, songs that they might sing along to at a show, Mm -hmm. um, but may not get added to a playlist. And they're like, oh yeah, 
hadn't thought of that. Well, of course, because mm. people want to hear those songs still. Mm. It's People don't just want to hear the slice of single that mm. everyone's got. Some people really like the track nine on records the most, you know, the melancholy, sad song that connects with them. And and I don't, I don't want to see those songs disappear from the face of the planet because of... You know, everyone trying to get their trying to moment, get on moment in the sun. New on. Music Friday, exactly, you know? which is terrific when you get on New Music Friday. But, but my favourite—it's only on for a week. Yeah. <laughs> my favourite songs of all time would never be put on any kind of streaming playlist. So you know, <laughs> I'm not—I'm not a very good authority on that. What is your process when you say, "Okay, I'm going to make a record"? Um, I know some some artists—they will have a, a concept title in their mind. What for you? How does it? kind of start it's really not that uh planned with me it's a it's a bunch of songs a pile of songs and i pick the ones that i think work together the best these days i pretty much only write what i record i don't really have any leftover songs anymore i used to but Mm. i think i just don't finish those songs anymore you get a little better at realizing them earlier on so you write 12 songs you record 12 songs and I don't often come up with a sound for a record. I certainly haven't, unless it's a concept kind of. Rattling Bones was definitely a concept, mm. and I had a sound in my head for that, same as Bad Machines. Um, but the last few records <clears throat> have just been a matter of picking the songs, picking the people that I think will work well together, which is a large part of production. It's, it's about the personalities involved and the psychology of that group. That's a really large part of any kind of production um, musically and putting them all together in a room and just start playing and that's pretty much what we do and the record forms itself funneled through the collection of those people put together in that room at that time so it becomes a stamp you know of that place and time and that's as far as my thinking goes now I, I trust my judgment more now after doing it for you know this long and I just let the record form and if it speaks to me and I love it, I just go with it. So I, I rarely have a plan in place mm. anymore. I certainly don't have a, any idea of what songs might be singles or would be highlighted. Um, I, I just never even think about it until it's done and then you kind of have to think about it. Mm. But I enjoy the process so much that, yeah, I just don't find myself thinking so much about it. I certainly don't plan a record. Um, I've also come to realize i'm quite lucky to have my own studio and i can work on a record as little or as much as i want i can change it at the last minute i can re-record a song or i can drop this one and add that one um i'm fortunate in that way that i can just if a song's bothering me at midnight i can get out of bed go downstairs to the studio and redo something you know Mm. know, and i've got that capability so i utilize that (laughs) so you enjoy having it kind of at home I do. Well, it's good and bad, but yeah, Mm. I love having music uh, being made in my house. I love the fact that I can go to work without leaving the house, which is Mm. great. Um, I'm a bit of a homebody and a recluse and it works for me. I I can go to work without really getting properly dressed, Mm. you know. Because some people can't, I struggle with that for whatever (laughs) reason. Yeah. I'm what, working from work? home a lot at the moment. Going to work in underpants, you struggle. Yeah, with I do. <laughs> I do. I, I do like to go and out and see people and yeah. get that, I guess, creative energy. And obviously, you do. You know, as a producer, you're bouncing off people and you're you are with, seeing people. Yeah, you know, Matt Fell and 
all, all, the, all the guys you work with. Yeah, it's. I, I do like the. I mean, it's hard. It's it's the same as anyone who works from home. You need to come up with a work life balance and mm. and a pretty strict routine of when you do work and when you don't. And that usually goes out the window. Smart now. apps on TV, worst <laughs> thing ever. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I mean, you can just watch YouTube all day. That's right. <laughs> oh, look at this. Oh, it looks interesting. It's right. It's right. Four Is hours it? later. I, I kind of love it when I get lost in that studio bubble and I forget that the outside world exists. I mm. love that. It's my favourite place to be. And, you know, I could pretty much spend my life there and be happy, you know. So. You don't really come across to me as the go-to-a-three-hour session guy, you know. <laughs> and <not> me, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, very much, no. Go and meet two people, write a song for three hours, have a... Have an hour off and do the same thing again. I actually don't know how people do that. I know lots of people that do. Mm. I just can't get my head around that. I am, um, I feel too physically, actually physically drained at the end of that process to just mm. contemplate doing it twice more again in the one day. Mm. You know, um, certainly I find that really hard. I actually went on a writing trip to England last year, and um, not for me. I was just kind of writing catalogue for my publisher and. I wrote one a day and that was enough. You know, that just took it out of me. Mm. Kind of one song a day. <laughs> I well, can't do three. Interesting. Last episode we were talking to Phil Barton and oh, he, well, he, he is a guy who can do that yep. three times a day and just churns it out like yeah. incredible. He's but, yeah, inc- he is that, incredible. Mm. Yeah. And he's and that look, method works for him, obviously. It works for him. Mm. He's, and he said, he, I remember him once telling me that he writes at least a song a day. So, at the very worst, he's you know he's writing three hundred and fifty, sixty odd songs a year. Mm. You know, um, he said though it took me eight years in Nashville to get something remotely resembling a hit. So when you add up, you know, mm. all of that, you know, there's two and a half thousand songs you had to write. You know, to get to that point. So yes, you know, he stuck at it and he's earned it. He did. He did. I think when he got that hit, it actually went all the way to number one. It, it did. Yes. Yeah. That yeah. was his, uh, his first I mean, if you're going <laughs> to do it, Phil, yeah. go right to the top. Made it count. Um, let's, uh, let's talk about your new single, uh, The High Price of Surviving, which is a very moving song, and I'm, I'm guessing influenced very heavily by, um, you know, the events of last year. Um, you know, it's just the price of surviving we pay for sticking it out through another day. And then I think, you know, the following line, but it's better to be taking them. Uh, the, sorry, it's better. It's better than taking the other way out. Um, let's let's touch on Glenn briefly. Um, that was obviously had a huge impact on you. Um, beyond yeah. beyond now. Look, I I wasn't. I knew Glenn, but uh, obviously wasn't as close to him as you were. Um, I think the the one thing I remember about that time was just thinking that, um, you know, here's a guy who everyone really adored. He has, has a beautiful family. Um, you just didn't see something like that coming. And it just made me feel like the mental health battle can't be won. Now, I, I don't necessarily agree with that because obviously there are a lot of wonderful people who have uh, encouraged and helped people avoid what happened but um, in other cases 
that's just how I felt about it. I mean, how how does how do you feel about you know mental health and helping people when you know something like that happens? Well, I know exactly what you're getting at. What you I know I feel what you're saying because <clears throat> all of our inner circle, our small group of friends that Glenn was part of, we all had that feeling after that happened of hang on, he was the one that was most together of all of us. So if there is that hopelessness attached to it, like if he mm. can't be saved, what does that mean for everybody else, you know? Mm. And yeah, that, that's that was certainly how we felt. Mm. And uh, he he's the one that seemed to have it all together. He worked uh, diligently. He was incredibly creative, super productive. Um, he did it all with such grace and was always easy to get along with. Nobody ever had a bad word to mm. say about him. He was, um, he wasn't even me- really that much of a lover of people, but he always gave them time. And mm. you know, he was a very generous guy. And uh, yeah, you look at and a beautiful family who I know and love very much. And you look at that and you think, you know, shit. How are we ever going to save the people that we know are really struggling when mm. this guy it- who seemed to have it all together, mm. and you know, not even his wife knew you know and so it does make you realize that it's a very silent disease mm. you know and um yeah it was a big it was a big deal glenn played in my band for about nearly 18 years um played on my very first solo record and has been in my band ever since um we were we had actually formed a pretty bit of a gang i guess between matt fell and, mm. and and Josh Schubert and myself, who were the four kind of that was my A team band that I had for a long time making records, and um, he was part of the gang. But not just on that, he everything that Matt produced or I produced, we were Glenn would be part of that as well. Mm. So getting back to work after that was it was it was weird because mm, I can imagine. he was such a part of all of that, and we both had projects. Matt and I talked a, a lot about it. We both had projects that were. And so did Sam Hawksley in Nashville, that were unfinished, that still had Glenn playing on them, and we had to go and finish these records and mix his guitar playing after it. And it was very weird to get back into that mode because he was such a part of it for us for mm. so long. Uh, and neither of us have actually tracked a band all in the studio since that because we're both still kind of uh, figuring out how do we do this now? Like how do we go, mm. go into this? We're kind of... It's like the wheel. The car lost a wheel, you know, mm. and mm. we need all four wheels. So, yeah, it's 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 full on. The the interesting thing though here, which is um, completely understandable, is that I actually wrote this song uh, that we're talking about, the high price of surviving, eighteen months before Glenn died. Mm. So I wrote it at a songwriting retreat, uh, which is a thing I go to every year as a tutor uh, with a bunch of other artists. Um, Felicity being one Felicity's a tutor Kevin Bennett Luke O'Shea uh, Jen Mize uh, Carl Brody used to be one And I kind of filled his spot When mm-hmm. he passed away And uh, he's kind of become The, the overseeing grandfather Of the, the retreat And it's in Nundal Which is near Tamworth Every year in the winter And we go there as tutors And we write songs With uh, songwriting students I guess and I met this young guy, Leon Milner from Queensland, fellow Queenslander. In one morning, I was paired up with him, and we went in to my little cabin and we wrote that song, "The High Process of Surviving." In about three hours, we went for lunch. 
I didn't think anything or more of it. It just sat in a book with the 30 other songs that I wrote mm. that week with other people. <clears throat> and it resurfaced about six months later. I found that song kind of, I found it voice memo of it on my phone and I thought, okay, that's kind of cool. There's something in that. So I recorded it because I, you know, I have the studio and I can. I thought, okay, I'm going to record that and see what that sounds like. I became so excited about the song, like uh, it just took me by surprise that I actually convinced or got my manager to convince the label to put it out as a single unattached to any record. Mm. I didn't even have a record underway at the time. We just, I just said, look, I really like this song. Let's put it out. And this is uh, earlier last year, I guess. And then um, we had it finished and ready to go when Glenn passed away. And my immediate thought was people are going to think I wrote this and released it right now because this happened. You mm. know? So we shelved it. I assumed that months. there was a connection. Yeah. No, when it's I heard not. the song. And that's why I put it off for six months because I mm. didn't want, we didn't want it to land at the same time. It was actually due around the, exactly the same time. Um, and so we put it off for six months to, so was, or something like that. It was about November last year, I think it came out. I just needed some time to elapse because I also didn't want to have to go and do interviews and talk about it of course. at the time, mm. you know. So, and it was just too obvious, or it seemed too obvious to not talk about, you know, that with mm. that song. And so even though it was completely accidental prophecy that was, you know, sewn into that song, it um, it did seem obvious and I didn't want to kind of have to, I guess, publicly go through that at the time. So, mm. um, And it was, yeah, it was a very strange time. Glenn actually died on my birthday and the next day... Oh, my God. Yeah. That's really interesting because um, Rob Potts died on... Jasmine's birthday. Yeah, right. Wow. Um, her thirtieth. We will never forget that morning um, when we heard. Um, um, yeah, like the things you don't forget. You'll never forget you know, that. Yeah, yeah. That. Well, his yeah. other, one of his closest mates was is Anthony Wormsley, and who's uh, related to Felicity actually, and he's a fantastic guitar player and out of Tamworth, um, been in the country scene for years. His birthday's the the day after mine which was actually the day that Glenn was found. So we both decided that our birthdays are not going to be celebrated anymore and we've changed it's, our yeah, birthdays to a different day, a joint yeah. birthday, which is actually March 6th. It was just a random day and uh, we changed it because we didn't want to celebrate that anymore. But well, not for that reason anyway. It'll be a different kind of... Mm, a different celebration. A different celebration, a different mm. day, you know. Mm. And uh, so we both did that. Uh, but... I finally felt okay with the song towards last year, end of last year, and we put it out, and I, f I was ready to kind of field questions about it, I guess. And I was also conscious of, you know, Fliss having to hear interviews about it before she was ready to talk about it. And mm. But she has really led the way. She's been phenomenal. Yeah, has her strength helped everyone? Oh, I mean, it's been she's, amazing. She's helped all of it, us. All you know, of from the sidelines. Yeah. been phenomenal. She has really been the keel on the ship for all of us. She's a... Uh, incredible the way she's um, kind of steadied herself through all of mm. this and uh, the way she's, you know, being a mum for those ki those mm. girls. That's you know, strength just, for, for, the, for the girls. It's just, beautiful to watch, yeah. you know, and she makes me feel like I should be doing better, you know, and it's, it's amazing, mm. really amazing. And, um, you know, we're all, we're all getting used to the world without Glenn because he was a big part of all of our worlds, you know, mm. and, um, but, um, 
I, I've, I've just recently re- fully started my rec- my new record and it was very weird to go back in knowing that he wouldn't play on it, you know, mm. the first time in, in, you know, nearly two decades that I was going to make a record that I knew he wouldn't play on. And, and even though there's others he hasn't played on, it was just a feeling, a weird feeling. And um, all those little firsts, the things we have to get mm. past, the first birthday, the first Christmas, the first Tamworth, you know, Tamworth was mm. heavy. This year, yeah, quite heavy, you know. And there were a lot of obviously tribute events and shows, which yeah. were all wonderful. They were great and raised mm. a lot of money mm. for his daughters, which was fantastic. Um, and the Tesco West gig was great. That's a band that Glenn actually came up with the idea for, started with some mates of ours. Um, and unfortunately, he didn't get to finish it. So, uh, Jeremy Edwards kind of took that bull by the horn and got all of us to pitch in and finish the record and then they launched it um, in Tamworth so that everybody got to hear this work that Glenn had, you know, was so into it, you know, that he didn't get to finish. And um, mm. so, there, yeah, there was a lot of great moments remembering him and, and it, but again, it was one of those first. It was the first time my band, The General Waste, got on stage without him ever in its, you know, since mm. its inception. So, yeah, there was a lot of firsts we had to get through this year. Tell me about this new project you're doing, the, the fabulous Carpetos. Is that the, <laughs> is that the right way to say it? I think it's I think it's Capretos. Capretos. I think, but I don't know where it came from, who made it up, or what it means. Um, I'm not really a name guy. I don't, I don't know. I'm not very good with names. Uh, but I was just asked to be involved. Very, I felt very fortunate to be asked. But um, so who's who? So it's a band. It's basically a band that's been put together for some fun. It's uh, Russell Morris, who I've known and worked with over the years a bit and love him as a guy. Uh, Jack Jones and Daryl Braithwaite and myself. And we basically came up with the – or they came up with the idea. And uh, Russell called me and and he said, look, do you want to join this band? We've got this little band we want to start and uh, where we go on tour and we all play a couple of our own songs but we all do it together on stage like – you know, mm. friends playing music kind of vibe. And it just so happened that it was at a time when Matt Fell and Josh Schubert and myself were, were talking a lot in this post-Glenn era about how much music we're making on our own you mm. know, in our studios. And, and I was doing a lot of solo touring at the end of Love and Blood. And, yeah, we thought oh, we were talking about how we're you know, just not making a lot of music with other humans. And it came exactly that same time and Russell called me and said, does this sound like fun? I said, well, this sounds like awesome fun, getting to play music. And so the four of us will be on stage all night playing all our songs and with each other, but also with a, a band, like a live band. And um, I did think it was a bit of a side project until I saw the list of tour dates. It's quite extensive, mm. but oh, it's, uh, cool. it's cool. It's like it's a great be, show. It's going to be fun, I think, yeah. I don't know what Capetto's means, but I know it's going to be good. So Daryl will do horses. I'm guessing so. I haven't seen a set list from everyone yet. Like everyone's got to put all their songs in the hat yet, I guess. But I would imagine, I would hope so. <laughs> I want to play it on yeah. stage. Yeah. <laughs> you know, don't want to get the word out there. Daryl's Daryl's not doing horses at these shows. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he would be. <laughs> um, and, uh, something uh, that you and I both share is is a love for Billy Joel and his album The Stranger, which. Uh, it's a couple of years ago. Was uh, you were on an episode of Jeremy Dillon's podcast, uh, my favourite album, which 
which oh, I yes. love. Yes. We did that here in this building. Oh, uh, I wouldn't have taken you for a Billy Joel fan. <laughs> 52nd uh, Street, we did that um, one on. Oh, it's but, 52nd Street. But I love Stranger. Stranger as well. Yeah. I mean, they're both, yeah. Mm. Uh, that, that whole period stand of corrected. Billy Joel is sensational. Phenomenal. I grew up. The reason 52nd Street is that rec- is my record is because my dad used to have that on vinyl and play it to me all the time and it's it holds a lot of memories for me that record and mm. I love them and my band are quite well aware that if ever we're running ahead of time at a show there'll be some kind of Billy Joel thing thrown in there mm. somewhere and and they're not the easiest songs to just like lug along to you know there's mm. always a lot of chords and key changes and so they they can't stand the fact well, he, that he, they, oh, they love billy joel they mm. just can't stand the fact that old chucks well, he was a that. you know classical classically trained <laughs> pianist yeah. so you know it's not just three so- three chords and the truth with That's him it's true. you know well it's 33 um, chords and the truth but he mm. uh, he's also an incredible lyricist and it often gets overlooked and mm. how great his lyrics are and uh and the fact that he you know he wrote wrote all his lyrics himself. Like he's a really, really true world class songwriter. Yeah, you know? well and that's what he's always said, you know, I'm a songwriter who More than anything else just yeah. happened to play my songs as well, but that's yeah. kind of secondary. I mean <laughs> he's made a made a lot of money <laughs> doing that as a secondary that's thing. True. That's true. Um, How many is he up to now at Madison Square Garden? It's insane. Well we went to his seventieth birthday show in May. Wow. At Madison it's Square still Garden. going. He, it's still going every month. <laughs> That's and the show was amazing. I mean, everyone was up for the whole show wow. in, in Madison Square Garden. He, he, he does the same show that he's been doing for, for 30 yeah, years. He sits at the piano, plays it, and it's amazing. Oh, if know? I lived in New York, I'd be going every week. You know, yeah. Every month or whatever. Well, I, I guess that's what people do. They just yeah. keep going back and obviously... See, uh, I remember... When I was a kid, most of my friends thinking, you know, Billy Joel's music was a bit daggy because we were. Well, yeah, we were yeah there was a period to... there when, when I was, a, you know, a teenager. I was into Billy Joel, and right, everyone okay. thought that was daggy. <laughs> well, we, uh, you know, we were discovering Guns and Roses when I was thirteen. You know, that kind of, you know, and that was kind of all happening, and it was about kind of dirty rock music and. Um, I still loved, you know, Billy Joel. My friends might have thought it was a bit daggy, but I actually saw such a punk attitude in 52nd Street, particularly that record, the way he kind of spat some of those lyrics out. And there was a real punk attitude in there, and which he got a little bit, I guess it was the punk that he kind of pulled out of, you know, like John Lennon and stuff like mm-hmm. that, where he was drawing it from. And Was that was, the album he made after his first divorce? I have no idea if that was the case. Um I can't remember. Who was his first wife? I don't even his know. His first wife uh, w- was uh, was the woman he wrote Just the Way You Are about. Oh, okay. Um, and he now sings the line sometimes in the show instead of, uh, I love you just the way you are. She took the house, she took the car. <laughs> Does he? Wow. Yes. Wow. <laughs> Burn. Well, I think it was <laughs> her brother that ripped him off. He, he, wow. He was in had enormous debts and had to go on tour for a couple of years to pay them off. And, um, wow. yes. And then he married Christy Brinkley, um, who he isn't married to anymore, but still, still seems to get along much better with them yeah, than yeah. the first wife. But, uh, I remember seeing something where he was really angry after that, in that period of life. I can't remember what's that record or I wonder if the nylon curtain or, or one of those records. I wonder if what Christy Brinkley thinks about getting uptown girl Whereas his previous wife got just the way you are. 
<laughs> well, she was in the video, I think, for Uptown Girl. She was, and I think, yeah. but I think it was about her. Well, he wrote it? some other songs about her he as did, well. He did Blonde Over Blue, which was beautiful later, and all of that. Yeah. All about soul. All about soul, yeah. Um, and so it goes. I think is about Elle McPherson. Is it? Yeah, he dated well, Elle McPherson for me. a while. No, yeah, I and didn't that, know I think that either. When he when they broke up, he wrote that song. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, here was a period true. there where I think after that first marriage, he was. You know, he was Billy Joel. He was Billy Joel, the the rock star. star And he was, uh, you know, (laughs) utilising that, I guess. Why not? Got to meet some people that perhaps not everyone else gets to. Yeah, totally. Um, Totally. It's actually one guy I've never seen play. I've never seen a live show. So I'd love to see him before. It's amazing. Before I can't. Particularly um, in New York. I mean, to see it there would be incredible. I I, uh, had originally gone to see him play. I mean, not just to see him play, but I went to New York in, I think, 2002, and he was doing a show with Elton John and in New York and cancelled. He drove into a tree or something and had some some things he uh, needed to deal with. And, uh, yeah, I finally got to see him this year in Madison Square Garden, and I'm not going to say how much I paid for the tickets because <laughs> it was absurd, but it was worth every cent. It was absolutely amazing. Wow. Um, yeah, I'm jealous. Okay, just before we finish, something I always ask everyone. If you had one piece of advice you could give to a young singer-songwriter, what would that be? Well, okay, listen to all the advice you can find and then believe about 10% of it, and I think you're on good footing. (laughs) If that makes any sense to anybody, it will eventually. Absolutely. (laughs) Everyone has an opinion. It's good to hear them all, mm. hear them all, and then um, use the ones that work for you. Mm. Um, Take the time to digest and then work out exactly what's right for you. Shane Nicholson, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Been a pleasure. It's been fun. Uh, look forward to hearing your new album. This year, hopefully. Later in the year? Yep. Um, whenever it's done. Yeah. For the latest... Country music news and entertainment from Australia and the world. Check out tonecountry.com.au and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Remember to subscribe to this podcast so you get all the latest episodes as soon as they go live. If you love the show, please remind her to give us a five-star rating and even give it a review. I'm Tim Holland. I look forward to your company next time on the next episode of the Tone Country Cast. <laughs>